Welcome to the Emma G podcast. I am your host, Emma Gunnar Wardner, but feel free to call me Emma G. My guest on this show is Joanna McGarry, and I couldn't wait to get to Jo onto the show when it launched last April. In the main, because her body of work as a beauty journalist is insanely impressive. And also, having worked with her, I really enjoy the way her mind works, and I wanted to get that on tape. Jo has worked for the Sunday Times Style and Stylist magazine, and although you'll hear her describe it as a harebrained scheme in our chat, news reached me a few months ago that she was making something of a change. She is now beauty editor at large for Stylist, while she studies as a full-time student for a three-year degree in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Regular listeners of the show will know that I wanted to unpick how she went about making such a decision. Jo's impact on the beauty industry is huge. I have an incredible amount of respect for her, and I know I'm not alone in thinking she is a very special talent. To know Jo and to work with her is to know that she's incredibly intelligent, a little bit naughty, and on more than one occasion I've heard her referred to as a visionary. If you read Stylist magazine, you may recognise her as the Helen of Troy of beauty, or that's how I like to describe the fact she has launched a thousand wearable beauty trends on her page, Trend on Trial. I'm including a link in the show notes to her author page on Stylist magazine, where you can click through and read her work. She has penned and commissioned some of the most significant beauty features in recent times. In this show, you'll hear her talk about how she came to make the decision to go back to school, why Chinese medicine and acupuncture called to her, what it's like being a student again, and how she's managing the combination of school and continuing to be a beauty editor at large. We also talk about being teens who were experimental with our hair and makeup, where we sought our style inspiration long before things like social media. And pleasingly, we also discuss the meditative benefits of reality TV. All links and any references are available in the show notes on Emigrant Awardner and on iTunes. Thank you so much for tuning in, and without any further ado, I give you Joanna McGarry. Beauty podcast is Joanna McGarry, who, <laughs> um, if you are a beauty fan, you are no doubt, um, you will have seen her byline in Stylist and other titles in your esteemed career. <laughs> Hi, yes. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm fascinated to talk to you for many reasons, but recently there's been a big, big change I want to say change of direction but actually in the pre-chat it isn't a change of direction you used a lovely term where you said you're adding threads yeah um I spent the last 10 years in beauty journalism and was really lucky enough to work at probably two of the titles that I think do do it the best and that's um Sunday Time Style and Stylist Magazine and just this summer I decided to well come up with a quite a harebrained plan that I didn't think would work um, for many reasons but it seems to have fallen into place so I've now um, I've become beauty director at large at Stylist um, contributing features monthly and shoots and various other things and uh, I'm also a full-time student of Chinese medicine and acupuncture um, studying for a three-year degree. Wow yeah (laughs) tell me about how you make that decision um 
it's weird because it's not linear. It's not something that I started to think about and it gathered pace. It kind of started coming at me from all different angles. And um, I guess, you know, it started about eight or nine years ago. I went to China and had quite a profound experience with a TCM doctor um, who did this amazing diagnosis, took my pulse, licked my tongue, and then just told me every single thing that had happened to my body. Um, Just kind of hit the nail on the head in so many different ways. And that kind of stoked an interest in um, the field of Chinese medicine. And that had always been there. But obviously, I was very focused on my my, uh, career as a beauty journalist. And it got to the point where I loved what I was doing, but I kind of started to look ahead and think, okay, and then what's going to happen? What next? What do I want to do next? And, you know, I think the publishing arena for beauty journalists is absolutely evolving and it is in a state of flux. And I just, part of part of it was that and part of it was needing something new to sink my teeth into. I think our careers do go almost in cycles of eight to ten years mm-hmm. um for me anyway maybe that varies from person to person but the person I was when I got into this field beauty journalism at 24 I think I was versus who I am now and what interests me they are slightly different people I still have those interests but I wanted to respect the other interests in my life and see if I could um, forge a path where I could kind of explore them both um, and yeah hopefully ultimately lead a life where I can have more than one uh, discipline mm-hmm. in my life and I think that is over the next 20-30 years I think that's how we'll work more and more particularly if you are in the creative industries. Mm. It's such a an incredible change and I'm very used to hearing stories of people quitting one job entirely and almost shutting a door on a phase or a period in their life and moving on to something else but I like this idea of broadening yeah I mean yeah I mean I do think part of that is I didn't want to think that I didn't want to look back and think that the time I'd spent forging this career and climbing up the ladder had been for nothing I mean obviously it will inform so much of what I do in the future Mm. just even in terms of how I look at something I'll look at something with a journalistic sensibility I'll look at something with more of an investigative eye than I would have ordinarily which does actually help very much in Chinese medicine and process of diagnosis and acupuncture but um yeah it was it was that actually no this 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 can continue and and alongside I can hopefully Um, discover this other huge interest of mine and you know almost just take take a risk I I kind of felt like I was jumping a bit off a cliff um we're definitely not you know hugely financially secure so there is risk there but even that is kind of it's thrilling to put yourself out Mm. there and feel that you are risking something for something that you really want, as opposed to just kind of trundling along and, you know, and and not taking those risks. I think it's healthy to feel a bit scared sometimes. Mm. Is risk something that um, is familiar? Yeah, I think definitely. I think um, I've always liked to put myself in situations that aren't entirely uh, secure. So, you know... I left home when I was 17. I 
I went to uh, a uni in London, I quit, I moved back home, had a succession of really, really terrible jobs, went to uni again, made a pact with myself not to quit, um, even though I turned rocked up like a um, punk rock skateboarder and everybody else was there in their pashminas and, you know, I could not have been more of a fish out of water. But um, You're a punk rock skateboarder? Yeah, well, I, I came from working in a skateboarding shop and um, had dyed black hair and I was definitely the alt girl, you know, and people at my university were definitely not. But all of that was... You know, more than even the degree, I think that social, uh, you know, not conditioning, but those that education of how to kind of how to perform and how to be confident in different social settings where you don't feel like you belong is such an amazing grounding for both life as an adult, but both uh, life in the media. We are thrust into some crazy situations and you know put in front of people where you have to kind of instantly know how to build a rapport Mm -hmm. so all of that stuff is really great and yeah uh taking risks I I paid my way through uni and uh and a massive risk I guess was going into magazines because obviously as you know it's very clear it does take a lot of uh guts to go down a path where you need to intern for free for a certain amount of months and mm. you know I didn't have the means to do that so I signed on um which is precarious and I don't think you can get away with it now but um I would sign on every two weeks so I'd leave the fashion magazine where everyone was dressed in you know the latest 400 pound pair of trousers <laughs> and pop down to the doll office um and I would get my housing benefit. And so I did that for about eight or nine months. And then, you know, they kind of were encouraging me to go and take these jobs at the hospital and stuff like that. So I think I've always definitely put stuff mm. on the line to better myself. And I and I think that ultimately does come from having a working class background and knowing that you cannot rest on your laurels. Mm. You've got to take those risks. You've got to push yourself forward um, because otherwise you, you don't stand to gain anything. How did what did what would you say you learned most from interning and from doing that work for free? Um, how to behave in a magazine setting and the work ethic. So I kind of believe I probably already had that work ethic, but it put it into a very kind of specific framework for me. So I knew that um, I should stay as long as my bosses were. Mm-hmm in the office then that's as long as I would stay just to go the extra mile and to think that think what that person would need before they think of it and you know we all kind of have a bit of a moan about how you know in terms of today they don't work as hard as we used to but you know what we were probably in the wrong for having had to do it that way Mm. um there is more of a sense of respect in the workplace now that definitely wasn't around when um I was interning I think you are lumbered with a whole lot of work and, you know, often talked down to, but you get on with it and, you know, the, the best that you can hope to achieve is to be noticed. Um, mm. I spent a lot of time transcribing interviews for the features department. Um, I would spend hours tidying the fashion cupboard when I was a fashion intern. Um, but I knew if I was going to tidy that fashion cupboard, it would be the most immaculate looking fashion cupboard <laughs> you'll have ever seen at the end of it. Um, so just this kind of like innate um, will to do something mm. to the best 
that I could. And I think that's probably carried me through. I am, um, to my detriment, sometimes a stickler for um, working hard on something or, you know, overdoing it. It's probably spending too long, over-preparing, labouring over a single word. I don't need to be doing that, but I find myself doing it still. But you wouldn't want to be... I don't think lingering too long over that stuff is bad, as long as you can sleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 see, I see the other side of it, and that's just not me, which is... You know, I, you hear that kind of saying in business, which is actually just good enough is good enough, or, mm. you know, getting, or just doing it is good enough. Um, but that's not really ever been my kind of approach, and, and I think that has been kind of how I've ended up successful in, in beauty is because I will take that time to go the extra mile and double check and over check mm. and that's also all part of the kind of creative process and the thing that I find fun is unearthing something that maybe nobody else has unearthed before mm. it's interesting that you talk about interning because uh lovely Sally Hughes is on the podcast and I asked her what her sliding doors moment was and it was in reference to tidying up a fashion cupboard when no one else was in the office, I think her first day of work experience or interning, and just figuring out which product, which clothes belong to which agency and then sorting them for a return. So I do like to ask people about their sliding doors moment, and so it's appeared early, but do you, can you think of one in your life? I mean, a couple of things stick out from interning, actually, that... They actually, when I think back, I think, God, you know, I did have balls because I was thrust into this, um, you know, this amazing fashion magazine where everyone had means, everyone could dress how they wanted to. I not only had no money to eat, I had no money to dress myself in a way that I'd like to have, you know, what with my interest in fashion and working at a fashion magazine. So I used to kind of, I'd buy clothes from Oxfam or eBay and I would doctor them, so I basically hem them or try and make them a better version of what they were. And then I'd kind of that would be my 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 uniform. And I remember walking around the office once, and um, a notable journalist who was um, a contributor, a columnist there at the time, was sniggering behind my back because I had threads hanging down from my badly sewn hem, and I just had this rage inside me. I was like, how? dare you I'm trying to stay in this ship as best I can um but then it worked the other way too you know I take an old granddad jumper and cut the bottom off it so it kind of just had a raw hemline and I remember one of the kind of senior fashion editors at the time looked at that and was like where did you get that jumper from I was like (laughs) and then I think it was on the barometer or something and you know it kind of I had youth on my side for sure and I think when you know when you when you have youth on your side and you're doing things that maybe other people aren't doing mm. it, it does capture the attention but little did they know I was doing all of that stuff just purely because I didn't I didn't have the means to go and you know go shopping or anything like that um but I don't know I don't know did I have a sliding doors moment I'm not sure um the decision to well tell me about going back and being a student because I actually still occasionally have the odd nightmare about not having revised and things like that that's a common nightmare do you know how many people have actually said that to me since (laughs) I've come back it's a really common nightmare so many people and friends have said I still dream about revision and coursework um yeah, I definitely underestimated how much work was involved. Um, I think I looked back at my first degree, which was in English literature, and um, I remember 
having quite a bit of time on my hands. I was working a part-time job, but obviously not kind of in the same way as I am now. Um, I'm working two, two and a half, three days a week, some weeks and um, more days and other weeks. So I definitely have less time, but I have also underestimated the um, level of work, the learning involved, the breadth of information as well. This isn't reading novels. This mm. isn't dissecting literature, looking at similes, metaphors and imagery. This is... It's getting my head around an entirely new discipline, a philosophy, an ancient ritual. Um, but also, there's this whole other side where I have to I have to know Western science. I have to know Western physiology and anatomy. That's hugely challenging because I haven't been in education since my A-levels. So that's, what, 15 years ago? Mm. Um, in terms of science. Mm. That in itself, yeah... I haven't cracked it yet. I'm in week six and I haven't cracked it yet. In fact, I got a D. I got a D yesterday. We did kind of a practice exam and I knew that I didn't know the stuff. But I did, you know, what a journalist would do. And I kind of fluffed my way around. I had minimal facts, but um, I kind Never of... let them get away in a good of a story. Well, exactly. <laughs> I dressed them up very fancily. And anyway, the, uh, the, the response was too much descriptive language and not enough detail which I 100% knew when, mm-hmm. as I was writing it. I was like, I don't know this stuff. So this is the thing. I can't get around it. I have to know the stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast this morning, which is... Um, <laughs> you're a fan. <laughs> Big fan. Um, I can't, it was about how to learn. So how to kind of take in uh, large amounts of information um, on a macro and a micro level. And, I mean, that's almost what... I need to discover now because I'm looking at this information in textbooks um, and I just need it to kind of whoosh into my mm. head. But I don't know the means of how to learn anymore. I need to relearn yeah. how, how to, to learn. learn. Yeah, and I don't know if I'm doing it right. I do, I'm writing kind of my own vocabularies because the, there's so many there's so many new words that I just I've never heard of in my life before. So methods of learning is is kind of what I'm trying to focus on was that the podcast where he talks about and I haven't I'm not up to date with uh, Tim's podcast Tim we're on first name Tim, <laughs> um where he talks about the 12 I think it's the 12 phrases that you could need to learn in a language and then it, that they are the stems for everything yeah Japanese yes yeah so he does mention Japanese and he says that actually he found a poster um which has kind of all the main verbs of the Japanese language and actually anything above that you don't really need to know because in terms of the newspapers and um, any kind of communications in general, nationally, they just use those verbs on that poster. But then he went on to say there was um, uh, dis, D-I-S-S, which was, he was about to unleash the um, the genius of what dis meant in terms of learning, and I turned it off <laughs> because I had to go. But yeah, it, it's a process that I'm still working my There's way through. There's also, he's got something on speed reading. Oh really? How to how to read incredibly quickly? I need that. There's a he does a YouTube video actually, and he just talks about if you follow, if I were to look horizontally across around the room, my eyes would naturally jump, and if it's about, we'll do it in okay. slow motion. <laughs> but um, I will find the link and I will send it to you, and I'll put it in the show notes actually because it's really interesting because yeah, when you're reading, your eyes naturally jump. And my, I'm, a, I'm a mind wanderer, so I can read an entire book and just have seen the words. Oh my God, this is my problem too. I'm, you know, 
even with like a really great book, sometimes you have to reread a paragraph or a page. Mm. I'm finding I'm doing that with every single thing I'm reading. And I think part of the problem is I'm slotting reading into the incorrect window of my day, which is right. the rest and, rest and recuperation window between like 9 and 10 or 9 and 11, and I'll just sit mm. in bed. And it's it's not the right time because my brain needs to work at its peak to take these um, these ideas and this language in, and it just sends me off to sleep a lot of the time. Yeah, I yes. need to be that um, that robot in Johnny Five. It's the one where you just skim yeah. the book and absorb the entire thing. I think about him all the time. <laughs> I know what you mean. That's why. I, that's one of the reasons why I try and listen to podcasts because I'm, I am a mind wanderer. Yeah, but I am just. You know, did you ever record like your French verbs or anything onto a cassette I think when you were I in school did. and try to absorb? Yeah. Them? And that's the thing, learning by rote is one way of doing it, and I will need to do that for the acupuncture points because that is just basic, like learning words. It is, this is what it is, learn it, learn where it is in the body, learn how to describe its position anatomically. But everything else, the kind of the concepts and, you know, the the very kind of um, microscopic biological elements of the body, I need to understand that stuff. Mm. I cannot just by heart learn it. Um, and that is, yeah, something I'm way at the bottom of the mountain on. And it sounds slightly odd, but committing to a three-year degree, all of us have jobs, and obviously all of us are on embarking on careers, but we kind of know that every job is a month away from potentially ending because yeah. of notice periods, or three months, however long one's notice period is. Yeah. Did it feel like quite a massive commitment to say, right, yeah, for the next three years I'm absolutely doing it? Huge commitment, huge and actually financially I should be doing a part-time course because I could spread the cost a lot more but the thought of something taking five or six years mm. it floors me and I don't know if that's a kind of a London-centric thing because we're so um, immediate and impatient with everything but I don't want my life I also don't want my life planned out that far mm. you know I'd like to think that if if I wanted to, or we wanted to, we could be living in another continent in four years. Who knows? Mm. Um, and I think that's part of, you know, the reason that I'm doing this, because it opens up opportunities. It doesn't, you know, the path that I was going on was one great and amazing path, but I'm opening up more doors mm. rather than just having, you know, the, the two or three that were there. Um, but, yeah, it's a huge commitment. And actually... You know, I'm taking it one year at a time. So if for any reason I defer a year or... I don't know. It just... It is what it is. Mm. Every month it goes by, I'm like, tick, that's another month done. Um, but yeah, it's it's a big commitment. But yeah. you know what I never wanted to do? There are other courses out there, but I couldn't think of anything worse, no offence to anyone, than... Doing a short course in something as intricate and broad as acupuncture and then fancying myself as a practitioner, that's not uh, like something... Like nutritionist. Yeah, like, I envy those people that have gone down the path of nutrition or becoming a yoga teacher because you can get that done in a much smaller amount mm. of time and it's not going to cost you 27 grand. Mm. So, you know, I have... This is the thing that speaks to me that I connect with, so ultimately I have to do it in the full degree terms. Yeah. How did you choose your course? Um, I was... Uh, I, lo- I looked for about two years. Yeah, I, I kept... You know when you kind of tease yourself 
to kind of, you know, keep keep it going almost in your head. Mm. Like maybe you tease yourself with like a pair of shoes or something before you buy them. It was kind of like that for a couple of years. I kept looking every now and again and going and, and just kind of working it out in my head going, well, I could kind of start there and do this. So I sort of had an idea that I was going to go down uh, maybe South Bank or Westminster and I, I met with them both. And ultimately it came down to the timetable. South Bank is geared around people who work full time during the week. So the course is mostly uh, taught on weekends and evenings. I knew that if I did that, I would fill my week Monday to Friday with as much work as possible and then be doing the degree mm-hmm. on the weekend and evenings, at which point I would combust and mm-hmm. have a heart attack. So I thought, no, the degree should be the central point in my week and work happens around that. And if work has to go over the weekend and evenings, that's fine. That's right. going to happen. So I chose it that way. And also it's 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 known as being the best Um there's another one in Reading which focuses more on um, a specific form of acupuncture, which is called whooshing or the five phases. Um, and that's heavily geared around the fact that each of us kind of are naturally predisposed to being um, an element. So wood, fire, earth, metal, water, and that dictates or helps in the diagnosis as to kind of what might be going on inside. Wow. Yeah. I love the idea that you went originally, you had this, I don't want to call it appointment because it doesn't sound like it was, but this what, checked your pulse, looked, yeah. your, looked at your tongue. Yeah, I just, it's standard acupuncture is what I had and, um, you know, he just, I don't know, it just happened to kind of move me and, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the kind of frustration around acupuncture is that it, it's inaccessible, a lot of it in London at least is is it's not rendered particularly well. The experience isn't particularly nice. Mm. A friend of mine um, was messaging me the other day because she was um, needled by a person who couldn't speak English, which is very, very common, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But um, she didn't really know what was happening. There wasn't an interpreter there. The needles were left in. The doctor left the room. She suddenly felt uncomfortable, didn't know what to do, was left for about 15, 20 more minutes, and just became very panicked and in the mm. end shouted for somebody to come and you know, oh, no. release her. And, and that's just a really common thing. And I think, it, it, unfortunately, it kind of it gives acupuncture kind of like a bad name, but there is so much more to it than that. Mm. And it can be and should be a really um, meaningful treatment that, you know, that makes you feel mm. better physically, mentally, emotionally... Um, so yeah, he 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 was he was brilliant that guy um, in China, and then I've just seen various different people um, over the years, just kind of to have a look at different styles, mm. um, read books about it. It's a fascinating topic, even if you don't want to study it, just to kind of immerse yourself in it. I have had it twice. <laughs> the first time, true story, was at a spa. And I had um, I had some needles in my face. I can't remember why, but like probably the centre of you know. Yeah. And um, the fire alarm went off <gasps> in the middle of the treatment, and the option I was given was you can leave the needles in and come out with everybody onto the fire escape. <coughs> Should only be about five minutes, or I can take them out. So obviously I elected to take the needles out and not yeah. walk around like hellraiser. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another time actually, I have um, I overuse the muscles in my back and. Uh, it, the acupuncture was, it was really interesting. And that's, again, nowhere near as profound as you, but 
the guy doing it just said, when you put a needle into an overworked muscle that's tired and is experiencing pain, it's like, it's hard. It's like trying to put, cut through mm. gristle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the muscle is healthy or when it just slides in like exactly. a hot knife through butter. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting that you can just detect something so... Yeah, when, you know, if when you are a really experienced uh, practitioner, you will be able to feel everything in the kind of resistance of the needle. So not only does the pulse, the tongue, and mm. that really intricate diagnosis tell you everything you need to know, but actually that sensation of the needle going in tells you if you're in the right place as well and if you're if the treatment is correct. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I really admire about it is that you become good with experience. Mm. It isn't, you know, it isn't that thing where fresh out of college as a doctor or a scientist, you are the best you'll ever be. Um, you know, this is the type of thing that actually is um, benefited by years and years of experience because it's, you know, the evidence is all built on case studies. It's not a microscopically, biomedically, mm-hmm. empirically evidenced, easy thing to do, easy thing to um, test in that way. And I think that's often kind of set aside and frowned upon but actually that's how it's always been through you know through humanity people pass down um case studies stories of what works and and then we improve on the basis of that um and then and the other thing that's really misunderstood is the role of placebo and I was reading a book started reading a book the other day called Cure which is um by Joe uh, a western scientist Joe, something beginning with M. Um, and she's exploring the mind-body kind of situation because what uh, Western science says is that um, alternative medicines or, you know, homeopathic remedies and all of that, they don't work. It's just a, it's no better than a placebo. Mm-hmm. But there's this new school of thought that's brewing in, in all types of science and medicine that actually the placebo isn't something that is can just disprove something is not working. That's the body mm-hmm. healing itself. So let's work with the placebo. Let's look at why it's important. Um, let's look at how we can kind of incite the activity of the placebo in people. And that's part of, you know, you can kind of see that in action in acupuncture because... Somebody will come in and spend 20 minutes talking about their history, um, how they feel that day. Even that in itself is kind of a healing process. You know, it's like psychodermatology, isn't it? People who suffer from acne, two groups, one who talks about it and gets it out in a kind of therapeutic environment, the other person who doesn't, but the treatments are the same. person who talks about it, their skin improves. We're only at the very kind of beginning of understanding how the mind affects our physicality, how the mind affects our skin. So if talking about something, having someone spend time with you in a kind of diagnostic environment where you're going to be looked after, you're going to be cared for, yes, that's healing in itself. Mm. But yes, there's all of this other theory and discipline around what the needles are doing. Yeah. And it works, you know, in hand together. It's quite powerful, yeah, it's really powerful. I I am flawed and kind of a bit intimidating at the prospect that I could be part of that situation and hopefully, you know, give give that kind of experience to people and and it, you know, it's like what we were talking about earlier, having having a value in society is something that actually means more to me as I get older. Mm. Having a very direct 
giving a very direct contribution to human civilization is a really powerful thing. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason we're here. We like to work together. We're mm. worker ants, aren't we? Um, and yes, I, I, I'm definitely able to do that through journalism. And I think that beauty journalism specifically is hugely powerful, is a force for good when it's done correctly. Um, but it's in, a, it's in a kind of a very different platform. It's a very kind of distant influence. And this mm. is almost the complete antithesis of that. This is sitting in a room with one person and trying to make them feel better. Yeah. And that's a very special interaction. Mm. There's a sense as well, I was saying to Joe, listeners, before we started, um, your editorial has always, it's never served, there's always a lot there, I'm not going to articulate this particularly <laughs> well, but the word I'm trying to come back to is responsibility. So I don't feel like you've ever just bash out copy, which I'm afraid I've been guilty of doing. Um <laughs> There's thought, and you were talking about, we talked about a particular trend, and you talked about, well, what does that mean anthropologically, et cetera. Yeah. But so there is a responsibility in there of communicating, as you said, it can be a force for good. Mm. Um, and there's a huge responsibility with this too. I think I couldn't feel good about what I was doing if I felt like I was just spouting a load mm. of drivel. Um, I think there's enough inaccuracies veils drawn wool pulled over eyes and in the beauty industry as a whole and I think you know it's an honor and a privilege to have the responsibility of having to kind of dissect all of that and find that nugget of truth within everything so you know with a magazine like Stylist where the features can run to a thousand to two thousand words on a weekly magazine for beauty, that's quite rare. And with that in itself comes responsibility. There's a, there's a lot of words to fill. They have to be honest and they have to be meaningful and they have to serve a purpose. So, yeah, absolutely. I felt like I would be letting readers down and myself down, which sounds really wishy-washy and, you know, a bit kind of sickening. But it is that thing of I want it to I want you know readers to come away with having no, know something more about their own skin mm. or you know a particular technique or just to be entertained mm. and I think that's something we often forget that beauty is a cyberitic act it's something that is pleasurable joyous it doesn't have to be serious you don't have to constantly change your makeup look if you don't want to being stuck in a makeup rut is elegant <laughs> it's absolutely fine you know, once you know who you are and you have like a signature, I think that's really powerful. I look at Linda Rodan and I just think, God, I want to be her. You know, she's so elegant mm. and she just has that look that just doesn't change. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, there is definite uh, responsibility. And I think it's important to help keep, uh, keep that conversation moving forward. Mm. So I remember I did a piece maybe about two or three years. No, it's about two years ago. Um, on our changing attitudes to aging um it was about pro-aging which was kind of this thing that I had just sort of unearthed on the internet at the time nobody was really talking about it and it was just that actually this is a consumer driven trend we, we actually don't feel bad about the fact that we're aging anymore we've been told to feel bad for x amount of years by brands and marketing mm-hmm. um but we are rejecting that in favor of feeling good about ourselves and this was such a powerful thing 
I think brands have very cleverly responded to the consumer. And I think that's where we are in terms of the beauty industry now. Mm -hmm. The consumer is paving the trends. She is um, bringing new ideas to the table and brands are reacting to her. You know, previously it was the other way around. Yeah. And, you know, the consumer would follow the brand or whatever the brand message was. So I think that's a really positive thing. You know, that that goes across all different industries too. The consumer power is basically what's evolving industry. Mm. It is very interesting how it has completely changed and whether it's um, magazines changing and obviously there's a lot of bloggers who have a much more human voice. Um, and can be quite relatable, but there's there's this much bigger dialogue, and you're absolutely right. People are saying what they want, but to, I'm really interested about the signature makeup thing because <laughs> it just reminded me that I think I spent my teens wanting to find my look. Yeah, yeah. I think I yeah I've 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 tried that with fashion. Mm. I've really kind of like over the years, I'm just like I can't find a look. That suits me. I'm kind of, you know, um, venturing all over the place. And then I can't remember, I must have read in a magazine or something, but or maybe I just randomly came up with it. But I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll think of a person whose style I love. Mm-hmm. And then when I buy something, I'll think to myself, would so-and-so wear that? Because if she does, then I will. <laughs> and it was Mary-Kate and Ashley, and I still do it. <laughs> I'm still like, yeah, but would Mary Kate wear those H&M earrings? I mean, no, she'd be wearing like, you know, some amazing couture pieces. But yeah, I used to used to stress about that. But actually with makeup, I never have done. As a teenager, I, I didn't, I mean, I had pencil thin black eyebrows and smudgy eyeliner. Um, I didn't discover lipstick till I was about 25. So I remember going to Clinique with my mum and getting an eyeshadow duo and a lipstick. And the eyeshadow duo was called Down to Earth. And the lipstick was just raisin. Were you down to earth at the time? Well, it was just a brow. It was just like a quite a dark brown with a bone colour. I love that when you think about it, even the names of shades have completely changed. They used to be so polite and submissive. <laughs> yes. And now it's like vixen yeah you know foxy like you know obviously that some of them are quite kind of you know knee-high boots sort of thing but um yeah like that language has completely changed I think the first product I fell in love with was um Cheekies by Benefit do you remember it, it was in like a little metal tube and it was cream blusher the pinchy one not pinch that was Benetint I think Oh, yes, 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 no. But it's called Cheekies, and it was just the cutest. Me and my sister were obsessed, obsessed with everything Benefit. Um, but, yeah, really, like, hair was the thing that I constantly... I've been every single hair colour and with varying degrees of success. What were the... What were your... Do you remember the first time you dyed your hair? I had a perm, aged 11, that Christ. was traumatic. Criven. <laughs> that took the layer of skin off the back of my neck. And of course, at that age, you're far too polite to sit in the chair and go, yeah, I'm actually slowly melting into a puddle. There might be some acid burn. <laughs> it's all the same to you. And then I, I wanted highlights to look like All Saints when I was like 14. And I went to Tony and Guy, which was the very Didn't cool we experience. all? Um, <laughs> And it just didn't go well. Uh, I came up with with orange hair. Um, that was yeah, my my Plymouth years. Do you remember um, an MTV VJ called Marina Vanderbilt, who was the lead singer in the band Salad? 
It rings a bell because I watched Donna Air on Select all the time. <laughs> she was the VJ who had brown, sort of auburny brown hair, and then she had the two, two white blonde bits. She was the first one I can remember, and I was just desperate to do that. Do you know what I was thinking the other day? Gloria Steinem had an interpretation of that look, and it looks bloody incredible. I saw a picture of her, and she had, you know, in the 60s, she had sort of dark brownish, mousy hair, and then at the front, it was just bright, bright blonde. I just think that's a really cool look, actually. I think we need to bring it back. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to do have um, bleach, obviously, on my dark locks. So I think, I can't remember what they were called and I wish I could go back in time and find them, but they, they had a big advertising campaign around them and they were in a white, they were tints and they were in white packaging that was like, sort of almost like um, a little carrier, a little paper bag thing that um, met at the top. And it was like raspberry tints and strawberry colours, but it was very much like these warming... But they couldn't lighten hair then, they were just no. tints. So I had to compromise and just have like a pur- the purple bits at the front as opposed to blonde. How did we get these ideas back then? Because, you know, before social media and blo- like, what? It was TV, wasn't it? You know, you would copy somebody off TV or Top of the Pops. Yeah. It was, and it was, that's why I fear for people who are, for, for young people. Because there are, there's still girls from my school years who seem to be cooler and dress better and what have you. And it still kind of sticks. Like, I will always think about their look and, oh, God, I wish I could do that. And that's now happening on such a grander scale. It's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. I think the thing I constantly bemoan, there is no real scene or subculture anymore. Or There's not a selection of subcultures for teens to go and gravitate towards, mm. at least in kind of like a physical sphere. So... You know, when I kind of got into my sort of alternative punk rock at age 15 and had this micro fringe and kind of would put beads in my hair and all this stuff, I would go and see other like-minded folk at the local punk rock club. You know, clubs don't exist anymore. Fabrics close down. It is a sign of the times. And I just think if you want to be part of a scene these days, the only way you can really engage is digitally. So we're almost, we are behaving like avatars of ourselves. Mm. And I think there's something lost there, um, which, you know, I don't think we'll really, really get back. Socialisation, for one thing. And also it just feels like we're all in the matrix and that we're just Keanu Reeves in that big bubble. Because we're, we're, you're able to be a part of your favourite pop star or your favourite band's world in your bed. Yeah, and and actually we're just floating heads then, aren't we, really? We're just brains in the ether. Um, Yeah. Whereas I know, for me, I mean, I was obsessed with the Black Rose. Absolutely obsessed. And I think when I was 12, my father took me to go and see the Black Rose. And I felt like, yes, yes, all of this... Absolutely. This is this is my people. I'm on board with this. Yes, this is where I feel good. Yeah, and I mean, you don't get that through Instagram. Well, I, where where would you go as a 15 year old girl now? I have no idea. Where would you go to hang out with? I mean, do you just go to like the mall? That would not be as you know. That's just not fulfilling or entertaining in any sense of the word. But um, yeah, I I had a fun childhood. I was yeah had a lot of fun <laughs> see that's what I miss you just don't see like it's kind of nice seeing the, the sort of groups who maybe are a weenie bit too young to be in the pub garden but they are anyway yeah and they look a lot older than you know what I mean like because that's what when I was growing up you go yeah that's really cool I can't wait to be them 
But they have their heads screwed on as well. I don't know if the curriculum has changed in schools, but, you know, if you ask a 15-year-old what she wants to do now, she'll probably have it all planned out. Um, and she'll understand how things work. I think we're all quite clueless in terms of business and employment when we left school and even university. I had no idea even how to get a job. I moved to London. I was like, right, what do I do? And I was like, okay, I think I want to work in fashion. So went to recruitment agencies and they put me in the head office of a high street retail chain. And I was, um, I, my job was to allocate mannequins to new stores. So essentially... They put me in front of spreadsheets, which being completely mathematically redundant, I constantly messed it up and sent the wrong heads to the wrong stores and arms and legs all over the place. Oh, wow. That yeah. sounds like quite, quite a crucial role. Yeah. Well, it was from there that, you know, I was like, okay, I can't, I, this, I can't do this. I need to just, again, take a massive punt and see if I can get into some magazines yeah. and do what I love doing. Did you do it by letter writing? Remember when we used to write letters? No, I called up every single magazine um, in London and I think it was the London paper that actually there and then um, said, come in tomorrow. So obviously it doesn't exist anymore, but it's funny how, you know, that was the mm. beginning and then I ended up at Stylist also kind of a free, freemium title. Freemium. Freemium. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was the London paper that was in the same building as the Sunday Times. And so, you know, I kind of mm. got to know people there and, you know, you bounce from one thing to the next um, at that point. So, yeah, I did, did a bit of a call round. I think that was for me. And it's, I'm going to really expose myself here, but it, how intimate it is, like papers belonging to the same group and magazines and whatnot sharing the same building. And um, I remember when I first did work experience years and years and years ago, um, ringing up, I don't know, it's like L'Oreal, for example, calling in some product for the editor or the beauty editor. And then the next one on the list was Maybelline. So I was like, that's really weird. They must be in the same building. They've got the same area code and the first four digits are the same. And it was just so... I didn't realise that all these brands owned lots of different brands. For some reason, I thought everyone was their own island. I mean, I couldn't believe that it was part of the job of a beauty journalist to go and have breakfast with somebody... <laughs> no, I know, I know. I was like, so, no, some something's going to happen here. I'm going to get escorted out, or you know, once you go up the ranks into kind of assistant or editor, and part of your working week is to go and have some really nice eggs on toast. You know, that's like okay, mm. we're we're in a good situation here, and you know how lovely to be able to do that, and how lovely to spend time with actually other like-minded women who are all really lovely and all all have something to say um it is a very special industry which is why I'm not kind of leaving it behind I I adore beauty and telling stories about it because in the industry you're you're a big deal I don't think that could be said (laughs) I think it's completely natural and normal for you not to be saying those words but I'm going to say them for you um and I think if you had ejected, there would have been a mass uproar and I think you would have just had a human pyramid of people just tether you to, your, to the ground and say, don't leave. I know, it's, it's, it, that's, like, ridiculously kind, but I think as a journalist, you, nev- you can't be subjective about your own, your own appeal or even your own style. I have vague kind of, uh, a vague kind of understanding about 
what I do and maybe what I do better than other things. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't really sit here and describe my kind of MO as a beauty journalist because I only know one way of doing mm-hmm. it. Um, it's nice to have recognition and it's nice to be kind of valued um, because there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. But I have that same, you know, recognition and value towards other members of the industry. I look at them and I just think, wow, that's such a bloody good idea. Mm. You know, I wish I'd thought of that. Um, so it is, you know, it is it is a supportive network most of the time. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I feel very lucky. And like you say, whether it's having breakfast um, for work. Incidentally, when I first started, I was so completely, I thought it was such so bonkers. I would have eight o'clock breakfast so that I could be in work. I did the same time. thing. I, yeah, I did. I I, because you don't think, this is not work. <laughs> This is not work. This is this is like a lovely treat. Um, so you have it outside your working hours. But you know that that's... The thing is, beauty is a business and there's money at stake. And so there's budgets flying around. And so you do get to do amazing things. Having to kind of maintain that boundary be- between, you know, being taken to a certain place, you know, having a lovely dinner and not simply kind of covering a product because of those experiences Mm. is something I've always felt very strongly about and I think if you're good at your job and you get to kind of a beauty director level I think the likelihood is you'll also feel strongly about that too Mm. um again it comes back to responsibility uh you just you can't break that boundary whatsoever otherwise you're on your ass Yes, one is (laughs) also incidentally at my first breakfast I was so confused that I ordered the continental (laughs) And then was so embarrassed, I ate the entire thing. Where, what, the, like a buffet? Essentially. <laughs> so I think I was with someone who ordered like a, like a green tea or a mint tea and a, a plate of fruit. And I was so flummoxed. I said, oh, have continental. <laughs> the only other experience I'd had of a hotel breakfast was collaboration. Well, I think for the first three years, I had probably a full English because you think that's going to be the only time you can do it. So you might as well just fully indulge. And now it's, you know, you turn into kind of a typical uh, beauty editor, um, no bread, I'll have a juice, you know, all of that stuff, because it is an indulgent way to live at times. But um, yeah, like what a dream to be able to do that in London, the best city in the world. And, you know, you get to go out and have dinners and and meet people. It is is an amazing, I feel very privileged to be part of that world. Very cool world. (laughs) Um... Talk to me about, um, you just talked about mindfulness. Mm. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I think that as we get, as we all get a bit older, yeah. we take a bit more time, do you, and I suspect, although I'm putting words into your mouth here, that making this decision to add this thread came from some reflection and maybe... Yeah, it was actually probably more um, sort of a subconscious reflection. It just kept tapping me on the shoulder mm. as opposed to me kind of dredging it up from inside and looking at it head on. It just kept tapping me on the shoulder and I'd see it everywhere. And, you know, as much as it is uh, a modern cliche of spirituality, asking the universe for signs is something that has always helped me. And I always do get those signs because I think it's all about the energy that you have and the energy that you're kind of hoping to receive. So I asked for signs and actually I was on holiday in Portugal when I put my UCAS form in and we kept driving around this 
roundabout to get to the Lidl to do our shop <laughs> for our Airbnb. And um, there were just these, this bunch of random kind of, um, uh, what are those big advertisement signs? The billboards. Yeah, big, big huge billboards around this um, roundabout. And there was one that was um, advertising acupuncture. And um, I just kept seeing it literally about... 10 times during this trip and I'd look up at that moment and so that was one of them and I you know I know obviously I could be looking for that but even that's a sign Mm. it doesn't matter how the sign is kind of given it's just that it was there so um yeah that's kind of how it came to me I've dabbled in and I say dabbled uh loosely I've dabbled in meditation and mindfulness my husband is really good at it, which is annoying because um, I get I get to about the fifth or sixth day and then I kind of start, you know, mm. teetering off a little bit. Um, but I'm I'm determined to kind of keep keep going. And um, he recommends a book. Uh, I can't remember the name, something about sense of peace in a frantic world. It's, it has a podcast that goes with it, oh. and that is known to be the best kind of uh, entry point into meditation and mindfulness. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I often think my love for trash TV is a meditative act because I find that incredibly mind-numbing and therefore soothing. Mm. So I think, in a sense, we all find a little pocket of culture that soothes us, um, whether it's kind of listening to music or going to the cinema or whatever it is I just like to be kind of pottering around with a really trashy tv show on my laptop now let's let's dig into this (laughs) let's drill down into trash tv because I too dabble (laughs) what's your poison oh I'm I'm really a catch-all so (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's not a lot that I won't... The, the depths that I've sunk to have shocked even me um, and shocked people that know me and, you know, know that, you know, I kind of... I work on different levels, I guess, and... Um, You're pussyfooting around. Yeah. You're telling me the, the oh, dog God, what would be What would be the absolute trashiest... I mean, my favourite at the moment... Uh, obviously the Real Housewives but Real Housewives of Cheshire I very much enjoy yes and Pika has been on this podcast no yes no yes oh my god and she meditates <laughs> and then the of whole of this she series she talked about meditating and the whole of this series Dawn Ward keeps saying man you go off and meditate yes <laughs> And I just thought, I think Dawn Ward might have listened to my podcast, or at least someone's told her about it. Oh my God. Okay. You need to get Lauren on because she's launching a fragrance. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. Love all of that. I love peering into other people's worlds. You know, that's obviously Mm. a journalistic trait. Yeah. Um, I've watched Geordie Shaw. Do you know what I thought the other day? I miss Jersey Shore. Like I can't actually physically miss it, which is a bizarre kind of feeling to have. Um... But yeah, I you know, if it's trashy, I'll watch it. I actually found myself watching Sam Fair's Baby Diaries the other day, and then I was just like, do you know what? Even this is getting a bit like, yeah, too much. I watched it last night, and actually, it put me to sleep. There's no, there's, no, there's nothing, happened. nothing happening. <laughs> um, Except that you just shout at the TV because there's a dynamic there that doesn't make me feel comfortable, and I'm like, oh. Well, I found the website heyyou.com. Do you do you? 
I am resisting the subscription. Yeah. No, I think I've been subscribed for a year now (laughs) and I've nearly completed it. Um, But I watch TV in a weird way. I don't really watch it in the evenings. Um, But when I get ready in the morning, I have it on as I'm putting my makeup on. I'm exactly the same. The iPad comes Comes with me. Yes, yes. And I don't get signal in the bathroom, so I get really annoyed when I'm in there because I'm like <laughs> showering really quickly. Yeah, yeah. I hate to have to pause it to dry my hair. It's yes, really... then if the iPad, then you have to unlock it and then it might take it back to the beginning. <laughs> have to refresh it. Um, this is beginning to sound like an addiction because I'm hearing what we're saying. Yes, but it, I don't know. It's weird. It's not like I, you know, I don't obviously relish company. In fact, I like to be left alone as much as possible. But it's it's kind of just a mind numbing soother, like. It's a really safe, controllable company yeah. that requires no effort from No effort. Self. I have a list of about... I love documentaries too, and I have a list of about seven or eight that kind of I need to watch, but I have to be in the right mood, you know. Um, Netflix do great documentaries, and, and The White Helmets is definitely on my list, but, um, you know, you get around to it, you're like, mm, there's a new episode of... Uh, below deck on au.com so maybe I'll just do what's going to happen with Shannon Bedore is her marriage going to be okay I need to check in I cannot wait for the reunion next week of Beverly Hills or Orange uh, Orange County oh Orange County sounds like you don't know your housewives I know maybe I've just saturated my tiny mind with all of them the OC Vicky just makes Vicky Vicky I love Vicky Gunvalson um Sometimes if I'm bored and on a bus, I'll just look at them on Instagram and just like kind of peer into their lives. Yeah. It's kind of strange. I don't I don't really know the kind of the reason behind it all, but all I can all I can think of is that it's just safe and yes, as you say, it's kind of just a soothing, controllable way of and relaxing. With absolutely no disrespect to any of the women on the franchises, they are not social groups within which I would ever be able to observe as a participant. No. Therefore, this is the closest I'm going to I think get it's, to it. That's for me too. I think there's a sense of otherness which kind of creates the mystique mm. because it's very far removed from my life. Um, you know, I can't remember the last time I wore a pair of heels, like, let alone, (laughs) you know, went to a dinner at someone's house dressed in all my finery. It's not kind of like the life that I lead. And I don't want to make it too deep, because obviously it is Ratchet TV, but I do think there are lessons that one can learn from Mm. watching these shows. And the two lessons that I've definitely learned from, I think, Real Housewives specifically, are never wait for somebody to say thank you and never wait for an apology. Because you won't get one. Or if you get one from Vicky Gumpelson, it'll be written in a letter rather than face-to-face. And that will not please its recipient. No, no, no. Um, I was thinking the other day, actually, because I was talking about um, someone that I kind of banned myself from shopping, you know, because of the degree and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, And something I've learned is that, you know, that intense accumulation of material goods that the Real Housewives do so well, no matter which one you're watching... That has started to kind of turn me off a little bit, and it makes me a bit sad. Yes. You know, those walk-in wardrobes that are absolutely floor-to-ceiling, no one could ever wear all of those clothes in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it, it, there's something a little bit tragic. Heather's new walk-in closet. Well, she's been doing that house for about five million years, yes. and, you know, she's 
not going to invite anyone over till it's perfect. And I just think... Oh, no, she had the dinner this week in the construction. Was that... This is going to be my... <laughs> this is going to be Terry's bathroom. I think you're behind. Are you not behind? I'm up to date. Oh, I'm watching it on ITVB. Yeah, so you're like a series behind. <laughs> I'm so... My, I was just speaking to my friend Tom on the way here because I watch... Drag Race All Stars 2 week by week on True TV. <laughs> and he's like, Why? I've watched it all on the internet like the day after it aired yeah. in America. And I said, I like having a Monday night pleasure of sitting down no. and watching All Stars. If it's too. there, I'll watch it. I will um, watch it. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it to the point where I get anxiety because I don't have a fresh episode of any of my shows lined up. Right. And then I have to start watching real TV, you know, like The Fall or something. And, you know, I really would rather not go down that road. See, I had exactly what you said about wanting to sit down and watch a documentary last night. Because I was away, I missed the end of The Fall. So this is three series of investment. I would like to recommend Audrey and Daisy on Netflix, which is a really important documentary to watch because um, it's, it's... There's a social media edge to it, but it's about... Oh, I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, have you heard of it? I saw a trailer explain because it sounds really interesting. Audrey and Daisy were two girls in America that basically at parties got drunk and then were um, sexually molested by teenage boys, some of which came to justice, some of which weren't taken to justice. But it just is a really troubling look at society and, and how we judge women drunkenness what constitutes rape what doesn't um one of those girls well i'll let watch the documentary watch the documentary but it felt like you know with all of the trash that i watch it felt like an important thing to have seen Mm. and i made a mental note to try and do that more and i think you know we've kind of passed the age of um denigrating tv for being you know for people that just couldn't pick up a book or just something that's very kind of basic um, and now it is something that actually is a force for good and can can really kind of put across a message. And, yeah, this really kind of hit home. It's interesting because sometimes I get real guilt about the fact that I know what's going on, despite being a series behind, that I know what's going on yeah. in Orange County, but I don't quite understand the intricacies of the American election. Yeah, don't feel bad. That's That's human nature. We cannot... We have to have, you know, it's like yin and yang theory. We have to have um, the hard and the soft. We have mm-hmm. to have a mixture of things. It's what our brain craves. Um, I think if there's like if there's one issue that you can kind of get your head around, you, there's no way you can get. Have you seen hypernormalization on BBC iPlayer? Oh, I feel like my brother was banging on about this. It's it's mind bending. Um, yeah, that sounds like. My yeah, it's it's a man's kind of theories as to kind of um, the Middle Eastern conflict and how that's impacted global politics over the last 30, 40 years, um, and just trying to understand that. But like his, everything in history is is subjective, mm. so that's his viewpoint. So even if you think you understand the election or you know a particular area of history or politics. You only really understand one side of it. Mm. So there's just no way you can ever... That's how I've always said. So my brother's incredibly politically aware and he can just, you know, magic up a scenario. So, well, that was because in 1973, such and such Mm. happened. And I just feel like if I wanted to suddenly be able to hold my own in a conversation about any kind of anything, Mm. I would have to do so much homework. I think it has to be a natural point of interest. Mm. You know, I'm as guilty as anyone for buying the papers and, and just going straight to the supplements. Yes. 
Um, because I, you know, I pick and choose kind of where I want my media to be and what I want to kind of be aware of, you know, but if I, it's like, if I go to a country, I absolutely need to know about the politics and the culture. So we've spent our honeymoon in Cambodia and I read three books about it kind of before I went enduring. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a fascinating country. Yeah. And still is very probably the most one of the most corrupt uh, societies in the world yeah corruption it's, it's insane um but it's it's a really interesting um way to look at is that does does reading about a place before you visit it does it get you more excited about going or does it um mean that when you're is it just because you feel that if i'm there i, I can't just order eggs and bacon on the breakfast menu I have to indulge and really I just don't want to be uh, I just don't want to be a rich ignorant westerner in somebody else's country Um, I want to show respect by delving into their past and and it is particularly countries that have had you know that that are struggling Mm. or you know and are poorer so it is something that I think it's, it's just a sign of respect to understand it and to kind of gain some knowledge of it Obviously, Cambodia definitely ticks that box. Um, I wouldn't say go to Paris and, and read about... I'd love to read about the history of Paris, but, you know, it's it's where there's something that... There's a fire that has been stoked or, you know, something to kind of um, draw upon. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to do. And I'd love to travel um, to more of those areas, Burma. And um, maybe the the new thread will allow you to actually... Yeah, I mean, that's that's the amazing thing, you know, learning something like acupuncture can... Uh, it's a global it's a global medicine and it can take you anywhere. Um, there are very different forms of it in different countries there and some countries don't allow you to practice unless you have um, passed their specific kind of exams. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. I was trying to suppress that. <laughs> um, but I'm... I feel so far away from that anyway. Mm. But I definitely, I already know that when I do practice, I would like there to be, um, I don't know if there's a UK equivalent of this term. It makes me feel very law and order when I say this, but pro bono. <laughs> like, I want, <laughs> it's important to me that I'm not just uh, treating amazing rich ladies in London. Mm. I want it to, you know, the whole point of it is to kind of be a force for good and, and to to offer some sort of healing in somebody's mm-hmm. life and you know there are people out there that desperately need that that won't be able to afford it and so that is very important and I think that if I was to ever launch a brand or a business a philanthropic element would have to be woven through mm-hmm. at the very beginning and I think all the companies that I admire in beauty and beyond have that as part of their DNA mm-hmm. you know Warby Parker Tom's Shoes um, even Sopa Duper, Marcia Kilgore, and mm-hmm. she's a you know, really great inspiration. Um, that's really vitally important. I think that's the only way to do business now. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Isn't that? Now, I was just thinking about something you said then, and it was making, and I completely blanked <laughs> because you mentioned so, Sopa Duper. So, Sopa Duper. We could, we could talk about Shannon Bador again. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon. Although I did go for dinner with Nadine Baggett the other night and the waiter said, what would you like? And I said, can I have a vodka and a Pellegrino and lime? <laughs> I'll mix it myself. I'll mix it myself. And Nadine just got the giggle. Um, no, I completely blanked on what I was about to ask you then because we went in a slightly different direction. But um, 
Do you think that this is where it will take you in the sense of um, starting your own brand and having your own business? I mean, I would love that to happen, but what I'm not doing is entering entering into this with an ulterior motive. So there is no super plan, there is no kind of grand scheme um, around this. I am genuinely interested in this subject and want to become a practitioner of acupuncture. Should that, uh, along the journey of studying you know, organically reveal something that, you know, I feel like could be a business, um, then absolutely. Um, I'm obviously, you know, quite keen on working for myself and, you know, gaining that independence. I am quite independent. But um, if it doesn't go down that path, that's absolutely fine too. I think our, as a society, our kind of definition of success is totally different to how it used to be. And mine too, from when I was growing up, it was absolutely accumulate what do I have what do I own you know what's my salary job title oh my god people do you know labor over that but it is more more than anything now it's um it's it's about the journey and the fulfillment and you know that really exposing thing of learning about yourself one Mm -hmm. of one of the um modules at university is about the therapeutic relationship and essentially you sit in a circle, you reveal things about yourself or you talk about anecdotes that have troubled you that you've witnessed in the clinic. Maybe a patient has cried when you've treated them or maybe um, someone senior to you has talked to you in a way that you don't like. Um, So you bring that to the supervision group and then we talk about it. We talk about our reactions to it. So it it does require you to dig deep. Mm -hmm. So they do say that, you know, everybody goes through their own journey so I kind of feel like I'm entering into this bubble and Mm. I'll come out the other side and I don't quite know how I'll come out the other side yet but isn't that exciting like yeah brilliant that is the brilliant thing I don't want everything kind of paved up because it gives you no room for kind of learning and changing Mm. you've got to just be open to it really and that's really I had no idea about that and that um I'm going to get slapped by certain people who listen to this podcast who'd be like, really? But it it feeds into what RuPaul says at the end of every episode. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can it's, I get an amen? I mean, amen to that because it is 100% true. And, you know, there are things that have annoyed me about, you know, practitioners before. Like there's one guy just didn't look me in the eye the whole time. And, you know, there's, there's kind of things that just... I, I, I didn't understand how they could be practitioners and, and not have that, but it's those things that we kind of need to dredge up and get rid of because you may not know you're doing it. Mm. Um, these are things that are innate within us from childhood. So um, it will be exposing. And, and they say, you know, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's there's a huge amount of resistance to that. But that, yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. The word that flashed up in my head and I forgot was empathy. The idea of doing the pro bono work and to actually make a difference in your life up to this point do you think that that you are quite sensitive to other people I don't think I've done enough in my life up to this point I you know I I feel like yes I may be caring to those around me and 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 hopefully I'm a good friend sister daughter all of that stuff but, you know, I'm not doing any charity work. I'm not doing any volunteering. I'm not giving back. And that's troubling to me because, 
you know, that's, I feel like that's our duty mm. to a certain extent. And I know all of this sounds quite prom queeny, but it's something that makes us feel good too. Mm. This is how we can kind of take this, take the world into kind of a better place out of the mire that we've got ourselves in, which mm. has been caused by, um, you know, the, the advancement of the individual. And I think, you know, to go back to working together is something that will, you know, bear fruit for everybody. Well, I am excited. Our time is drawing to a close. But um, I'm excited and I'd like to have you on in a year's time and then <laughs> have you on throughout the course of this um, degree. I mean, hopefully I will have mastered the art of um, the Johnny Five consumer book in three seconds scenario by then oh yeah well maybe we can do that after this because <laughs> I really need help with that too I just don't understand but apparently it's just a it, it's a very simple technique and Tim Ferriss has done a YouTube video okay I'm going to look that up I will send you the link and the link to that will also be in the show notes um thank you Jo thank it's you been really so lovely much Emma to you. it's been lovely to chat thank you glad we've got this opportunity um all the links uh will be in all of the show notes and if you want to get in touch um wait till the theme music has finished and all of the social handles will be shared with you then thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joanna McGarry if you feel so inclined and want to review the show please do head over to iTunes or if you want to get in touch with me simply email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com thanks for listening Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.